The following is a re-recording of a message delivered at Mercer RUF on October 22nd, 2014. Tonight we're back in the Gospel of Luke, and as I told you last week, we would have to at some point skip ahead in our study if we wanted to end the semester. And so last week we were in chapter 9, and this week we are skipping all the way ahead to chapter 18. And we've got quite a passage here tonight, so I will start here, chapter 18, verse 15, and you'll probably hear a few stories that you may be familiar with. Now they were beginning even to bring infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, looking at him with sadness, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And then he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from him and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus Son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but he could not on account of the crowd, because he was small of stature. 
So he ran on ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. There's a fascinating poll that I've seen over the years, and perhaps if you've taken a poli-sci class, you've seen this poll as well. But um, by and large, Congress as a whole is the most unpopular entity in our government. Abysmal poll numbers. And it's uh, just been routine. It's every year. Uh, Presidents come and go with poor poll numbers, but no one comes close to the near bottom-dwelling poll numbers of Congress as a whole. But the thing is, is if you go across the country and you poll individuals in every state about their own congressmen, the poll numbers are almost infinitely higher. And so the problem of Congress as a whole, poor poll numbers, is actually a perennial problem because no one thinks that anything's wrong with their congressmen, but they hate Congress. Another illustration maybe that fits what I'm trying to say here, um, back in the day this illustration would have been given as the answering machine, but no one has those these days. But have you ever heard your voice on a recording? Right. Usually when someone hears their voice on the recording, if there's people around, they say, Gosh, I don't sound anything like that. But what is what is it that everyone sitting there tells you? You sound exactly like that, right? We all seem to have a problem, and it's this. Is that there's a lot of things right under our noses that we cannot seem to see rightly. We've been asking this semester, Doctor Who. We were looking for to Luke, the author of this gospel, to tell us a little bit more about who this Jesus is and specifically what real and assured faith in this Jesus looks like. And I really want to hone in on that tonight. What does real and assured faith in this Jesus look like? Well, tonight it sounds like a bad joke, and it's the title of the sermon, Jesus A rich guy, a blind guy, and a short guy walk into a bar. (laughs) So I want to look at what is real through these three people, through these three little pictures Luke gives us. What does real faith look like? And I've got three points. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. The first one here is clear eyes. If you remember last week, the whole gospel took a turn at the end of Luke chapter 9. Because at the end of Luke chapter 9 and verse 51, we read, When the days came for him to be taken up, he set his face to go toward Jerusalem. So after Luke chapter 9, we have Jesus traveling towards Jerusalem for the last days of his life, for him to be killed, for him to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and for them to kill him, uh, to put him to death 
So tonight, when we pick the story back up in Luke chapter 18, we actually have him days away from entering Jerusalem for the last time, uh, entering Jerusalem the last week of his life. And so we've been seeing this question, pretty much everything Jesus has said and done has been begging this question to all that would hear or listen or watch. And it's this, what is the good news of the kingdom? And with all three of these stories tonight, all three of these persons that we hone in on tonight, they all have something in common, and it's sight, seeing the kingdom, what in days will be clearly seen by all of history. We're still begging the question at this moment, what does it mean to see the kingdom? And we see in these three men something, you look at the rich young ruler, he is totally blind to the kingdom. You look at the blind man, he totally sees the kingdom. And then you get Zacchaeus and he's somewhere in the middle because he just needs to get a little higher, a little bit better perspective. And then sure enough, yes, he sees the kingdom. All three stories are telling us the same thing in one way or another, that in and of ourselves, we are totally blind to the good news of the kingdom and the king who brings it. You see, throughout the Gospels, we see this throughout the Gospels, um, that that all these people are, are, are trying to get this, but all these people seeming are flocking to Jesus. They see him healing. They hear him preaching and they just don't get it. And the thing that you see throughout the gospels, it's not just the crowds and it's not just the Pharisees that are puzzled at times by Jesus, but it's his own disciples. We see that tonight. Uh, he tells them very clearly, I've got to go to Jerusalem and be handed over and killed. And we're told they completely don't get it. It's the third time that he tells them that and they just don't get it. You look at the rich ruler, we see in him complete spiritual blindness. But then you look at Zacchaeus and the blind man, and we see that their faith is actually a result of a healing of sight, both of them. But apart from the miraculous intervention of Jesus, we are in and of ourselves blind. That's what we see. I think we can see this drawn out in three different ways. And, and one is this. One, we are completely blind to our idols. We are completely blind to our idols. The rich ruler, he's an honest seeker. He wants to make sure that he's got it right. Um, he wants to you maybe investigate Jesus a little bit more, come say, Jesus, I just want to make sure I've got this right. But what we actually find in his interaction with Jesus is that he is completely blind to the barriers um, before him to God in his life. He wants to make sure that he hasn't left anything out. But what Cho Jesus tells him the problem is, 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 is not what he's left out, but actually what he has let in. His eyes are entirely fixed on the things of this world, specifically his own possessions. Tim Keller, pastor up in New York City, an author of many books, he says uh, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he says, in all my years... No one has ever come to me seeking counseling for greed. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Have you ever, I doubt anyone ever that you know, yourself included, has ever said, you know what, I spend too much money on myself. No one thinks that. No one thinks to think that. Yet we see Jesus warning people all over the place about greed and money and treasuring things on this, in this earth. But you know what you never hear Jesus say? You never hear Jesus say something like, beware that you're not committing adultery. 
or beware that you're not stealing or beware that you're not murdering. He never says that, but he does say, beware the love of money. Beware the love of the things of this world. Beware of the things that you treasure up on this earth. Watch out for it. While those other things are kind of obvious to us, Jesus kind of knows that one of the biggest things that he talks about, we are completely blind to it. We're completely blind to our idols, especially the idols that are of this world. But the second thing about our blindness is is not only we're blind to our idols, but because we're blind to our idols, we're completely blind to the depth of our sin. Once again, you look at the rich ruler. We have a man who thinks that you can come to Jesus on your own terms. In fact, he comes wanting to take he want, comes wanting to take Jesus only on his own terms. And this is why he walks away sad. You know, and a lot of people are scared when they come to this passage that what Jesus is saying here is that giving your possessions away is the only way that you get in. Well, he is telling the rich ruler that. But why? Why is he telling the rich ruler that? Because true faith in this Jesus clings to Jesus alone. And this man, the rich ruler, had no room in his life for that kind of faith because of what he clung to. His money, his wealth, his possessions. And what Jesus is ultimately telling is that ultimately if that was left unchecked, he was going to be damning himself to hell because of his love of money. And this is the clincher of our blindness, though. We're blind to our idols, and because we're blind to our idols, we're blind to our depth of sin. And because we're blind to our depth of our sin, we're blind to who Jesus really is. Paul says something really interesting in 1 Corinthians 1, 23. He says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. Now this is the question. Paul is saying that the message that he preaches, a message of full salvation from sin and death on behalf of the work of another person, that's the message that he preaches. He says that there's some people who stumble over it, and there's some people that look at it and say it's completely foolish. How can that be? Well, this is it. Because most people think they are basically good And because they think they are basically good, they do not see a need for a savior. And that's exactly what Jesus is trying to help this man see. John Wesley once stayed at a plantation uh, and toured the whole plantation. It was apparently a very big and and, uh, well-to-do plantation. He toured the whole thing with the owner. And once back at dinner later that evening, the owner eagerly asked, Well, Mr. Wesley, what did you think? And Wesley looked back at him and said, I think you're going to have a hard time leaving all of this. Such a telling response. This is it, y'all. All of us have something that we look to to tell us that we are okay. We've talked about this before. We all have something that we look to in our lives that tells us we are okay. And the question really is, what is that for you? You know, we are very quick to assert that Jesus was not telling us that everybody had to sell all their possessions to enter the kingdom of heaven. But do you at least find it interesting that that's exactly what all the early Christians did? Gave away all of their stuff. 
I think we can come to this passage and we can at least say this. If there is not an urge within us to give something away, we might just be stumbling around in the darkness of our idolatry to things. We asked this question last week and I ask it again. What is Jesus going to cost you? And will he cost you anything at all? It doesn't have to be money. It doesn't have to be possessions. It could be a self-destructive relationship. It could be an addiction that's eating away at your body. It could be an obsession that constantly shames your body. It could just be an unrelenting desire to be in control. The thing is, is that faith in this king... And life in this kingdom involves clear vision of believing the things of this world are just that. Things. What would our lives be if we viewed stuff as just stuff? Clear eyes. Real faith in this Jesus requires clear eyes. But the second thing is, is full hearts. Faith requires clear eyes, but it leads to... The second thing here, full hearts. And we see this beautifully in a myriad of ways in this passage. And ultimate, we see the ultimate emptiness of a man who had it all. We see the fullness asked for and received by the man who had nothing. And we see the fullness repaid by a man who thought he had it all but realized he had nothing. Full-hearted faith, we see in this passage, in these three people, full-hearted faith involves three, two things. Two things. Dependence and repentance. Dependence and repentance. And the first one is this, dependence. It's a great transition Luke makes there uh, into these stories uh, in verses 15 and 17. As we get this scene that all these children are being brought to Jesus. It makes sense. People have been hearing Jesus, seeing him work miracles, and they want him just to touch their children. And you can imagine the scene, right? There's probably something akin to Santa Claus in the middle of the mall. Tons of moms, tons of screaming, crying, whining, snotty kids, right? Let's be real. It was probably hell on earth, okay? Yet, Jesus says, to such belongs the kingdom of God. Whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child will not enter it. Now look, that could mean a lot of things, but at the very least, I think we can agree that it means this. Entering the kingdom requires utter dependence. Think about it. Think about it. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, he says this. He says, as soon as we are fully conscious, we discover loneliness. We need others physically, emotionally, intellectually, and we need them if, we're, if we are to know anything even ourselves. Look, there's something happening. This is a this is a parenting analogy when you have kids, but there's something that happens a few days after you bring your first child home from the hospital. Um, you, you've got the child at home. You've been at home for a couple days. There's just this moment, and it's probably even more stark for moms, right? But there's something happens where at, at, one, at some point you finally look at yourself and you realize. No one else is going to take care of that thing if I don't. 
right? It needs me for everything. It needs me to go to sleep. It needs me to eat. It needs me to keep it clean, right? And if I don't do it, no one else will. Think about the rich ruler versus the blind man here. The ruler comes to Jesus and he assumes he and Jesus are on the same page. That in the grand scheme of things, he's okay. He's got it together. The blind man as soon as he finds out who is walking by him, without hesitation, cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Look, there is nothing more disorienting than losing your sight. You know this, right? Have you ever been driving uh, when all of a sudden either, either heavy rain just out of nowhere or maybe your windshield fogs up and you cannot do anything about it? There is no greater sense of helplessness than going down the interstate at 70, 80 miles per hour and all of a sudden you cannot see, right? You feel utterly helpless, right? Or maybe it's the same when you're when you're in a building and maybe the inner rooms of a building where there's no outside light and the power goes out. You can't do anything. You can barely feel your way to the door even if you know the the room really well because darkness is so disorienting. The blind man gets it. He understands his utter helplessness. And what's fascinating is that his plea for mercy clues us into the, into the fact that he understood his spiritual state as well. He cries out for Jesus not as a teacher, but as the son of David, the only one that could actually give him mercy. And what's interesting is that we actually see Jesus' miracles throughout the Gospels, and we see the healing in this instance actually addresses his spiritual state as well. Rick Phillips talks about the the. the all the miracles and the, and the people's situations cluing us into this throughout the Gospels. He says this in his book on miracles. Leprosy shows sin's corrupting power and condemning presence. The lame shows sin's debilitating power. The dead proclaim the wages of sin. The demon-possessed show the destructive domination that's always the result of our bondage to sin and to Satan. And we see Jesus' miracles in a real way answering these very things. But, 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 we get so hung up in the fact that once again, this isn't the first time we've seen Jesus say this, but once again, Jesus says, your faith has saved you. And we think there's something that, that we need to go get or drum up or more, uh, more something, something more that we need to be like the blind man, right? But that's actually the complete opposite of the point here. Because saving faith is not something that we do. It's a posture. It's a state of being. It's a posture of complete helplessness and utter dependence on the object of our faith. And in saving faith, that is Jesus. We sing a hymn here at RUF that I think encapsulates this beautifully. It's called, Come Ye Sinners. And one of the verses goes like this. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, this he gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. It's like a child. You know that you've really started believing when you turn to Jesus like a dependent child. Dependence. But there's a second aspect here of full-hearted faith. We see dependence, but we also see repentance. 
Full-hearted faith involves repentance, not only a full-fledged dependence, but an active turning away from sin and turning to Jesus. And not only, look at the rich ruler again, not only does he think he, he doesn't need Jesus, but he doesn't think that he needs to turn away from anything. But you look at Zacchaeus, right? Not only does the love of Jesus meet him where he is, it doesn't leave him there. Zacchaeus immediately wanted to follow Jesus, and he immediately recognized that if he was going to follow Jesus, money was a problem. Because he had loved it too much, and he had gotten it wrongly, unjustly. You notice the order here. You look at the end of the Zacchaeus story, our passage tonight. And it's not until the end of the story that Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. But when did it come? That's the question. Salvation came the moment Jesus called him by name. So it's not that salvation came because of what Zacchaeus did. Zacchaeus did what he did because salvation came to his house. See, God's salvation is not in response to a changed life, but a changed life is the inevitable result of God's salvation. And we see that in, in the essence of repentance, of turning away from the old and running after wholeheartedly the new Another amazing thing about children, this is another illustration that I borrowed, but I see it in my own children. And it's their capacity to keep short accounts. They don't stay embittered. They don't hold grudges, especially against me. And, you know, there's something about me. I, I, I inherited a, a temper, and my temper doesn't really flare up in public or with people um, uncontrolled, I, I, I don't think. But there's nowhere that I see my temper more alive than with my own children, which is baffling because they are three people that bring me more joy than anyone in this earth. But whether it's from discipline and receiving it because they deserve it, or whether it's my own sin and losing my temper and being unreasonably short with them, it's always amazing how quick they are to crawl right back into my lap as if everything has always been okay. And I borrow this quote, but it's this. It's as if they intuitively know that the enjoyment of the Father is better than dwelling on the fear that I've done something that might jeopardize his, their, 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 my love for them. The enjoyment of the Father they see is better than dwelling on the fear that they've done something that might jeopardize my love for them. You see, this is why, y'all, full-hearted faith involves repentance. You know, we are Reformed University Fellowship, uh, and the Reformation was started, you may have learned in some of your church history classes, by a guy named Martin Luther when he nailed what is commonly referred to as the 95 Theses to the door of his local church. And what's often, what a lot of people don't know is what those theses said. And here's the first one. I love this one. The first of the 95 Theses that... Um, capped off one of the greatest movements in church history, was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, 
He willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Meaning repentance is not a one-time thing. It's something that we will find ourselves, if we have full-hearted faith, doing over and over and over and over again. How can that be? And it's this. When we have full-hearted faith, when we are utterly dependent, and when we are led in full-fledged repentance, it's because of this. Because we have come to know that there exists a love for me greater than all the affections that the world has ever known. And to know that love means that I can safely and securely give all of me to it, especially when I fall short of it. To know that love means I can safely and security, securely give all of myself to it, especially when I fall short of it. How in the world can that be? Well, I think Paul puts it no better than he does in Romans 5 verse 7. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Full-hearted faith so here it is. Saving faith requires clear eyes. It leads to full hearts. And thirdly and finally, it means that we cannot lose. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Look at me. Look, look with me at Verses 24 through 26, Jesus says something very interesting as the rich ruler is walking away. He says, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then we, we read in verse 26, those who heard this said, then who can be saved? See, times have not changed very much because back then the wealthy were viewed as those who had it all together. And to the disciples, they're thinking to themselves, if it's nearly impossible for them, then we are screwed. What is, what is the deal for us, Jesus? And that's what's amazing about Jesus' answer there in verse 27. It is impossible for you, but it's not impossible for God. Here's the thing, y'all, and this is what I want to close with. At some point, you will finally believe, you will have to finally believe that those who are closest to God are not those who have it all together. Let me say it again. At some point, you are going to have to believe that those who are closest to God are not those who have it all together. First step is admitting you have a problem with thinking that you need to have it all together. And also seeing that you have a lot of problems. And Jesus knows it. And that's okay. 
We all have a problem. We are blind to the idols of our hearts. We are blind to the depth of our sin. We are blind to our need of Jesus every hour of every day of every year until he comes again. Here's the thing. This is what's so beautiful about the story of Zacchaeus. This is the last one-on-one encounter that, that Luke records for us that Jesus has before he enters Jerusalem. And what's beautiful about the encounter with Zacchaeus is this, that what we see in Zacchaeus is that this is the kind of healing ultimately that Jesus is bringing. And you see it with the blind man too. Jesus meets the need of his physical distress, but what's so clear is that it's with a view firmly fixed on his eternal destiny. And what is that eternal destiny? That one day... God will save us from each and every last consequence of sin. One day, God will save us from each and every last consequence of sin. Our own sin and the sins of others. You see, the picture we get here, days before Jesus enters Jerusalem, is that for all the darkness that looms in the world, the powers of this kingdom are already at work. People are not only welcomed in, and we're not only about the business of helping welcome others in, but people are healed, and lives are changed. And we're called to take an active part in that. You look at verse 43 of chapter 18, after the blind man is healed, we're told that all these people in verse 43, they saw it and they all gave praise to God. But you back up to verse 31 and you think about what would have been swimming around in the disciples' heads. Because in verse 31, Jesus told them, we're going to Jerusalem and everything that is written about me will come true. I will suffer and I will die. And they're trying to make sense of that. And they're trying to make sense of the suffering Jesus keeps telling them about, yet at the same time, the glory that he keeps getting from the healings and miracles that he does. And so in verse 31, for the disciples, the shadow of the darkest day is already there. Yet they're they're supposed to couple that with the praise that he is receiving. So here's the question that I end with. How do the darkness and the praise fit together? And it's what he says in verse 31, that it is all happening in fulfillment of what the prophets have already told. It's it's precisely because Jesus will draw on himself the darkness of hell and death itself that there is new life to be had everywhere else. Get that, y'all. It is precisely because Jesus will draw on himself the darkness and hell, uh, darkness of hell and death itself, that there is new life welling up everywhere else, even in the hearts of individual people. Because you see, he will take on blindness and despair of the world so that we can finally see. He will suffer the loss of everything at the ultimate cost of himself so that we, catch it, 
might become and have the riches of God. Paul puts it so beautifully in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. There's a beautiful old hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, and the chorus goes like this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And all the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's an invitation to you tonight from this Jesus. Let's pray.